And you guys may be seated. For those of you that utilize our children's ministry, we run that through uh, first grade. You're most welcome to take your children um, back there to check in now. For those of you whose children stay in the service, we love having kids in the service, and so they're they are uh, they're most welcome. Uh, again, just learning the the rhythms of worship alongside the rest of us. Uh, we've been going through. We read. Each Lord's Day at this time, just a paragraph out of our confession of faith. Um, the elders, we want to uh, keep our confession in, in front of you, and, and we think this is a good way to be able to do that. And I'm working through, again, just chapter 8 of our confession, the London Confession of Faith, the 1677 or 1689 London Confession of Faith. And I'm going to read paragraph 2 to you. There's a copy of it in the pew in front of you. You're most welcome to look on as I read it. But paragraph 2 of chapter 8, which um, is talking about Christ as our mediator, it says this, The Son of God, the second person in the Holy Trinity, being very and eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory of one substance and equal with him, who made the world, who upholdeth and governeth all things he hath made, did... When the fullness of time was come, taken to him man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof. Right? So he became truly man, the eternal God did. Yet, without sin, being conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the Holy Spirit coming down upon her and the power of the Most High overshadowing her and so was made of a woman of the tribe of Judah, of the seed of Abraham and David, according to the Scriptures. So that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. So that's paragraph two, a very crisp statement as it relates to the two natures of Christ. But with that said, would, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the gospel of Mark. We are working through <clears throat> presently chapter seven of, of, of Mark's gospel. And this morning... We're going to look particularly at verses 21 to 28. In fact, we're going to look at this passage as we did the, the first 23 verses of Mark chapter 7. As you know, we, kind of, we gave that about two weeks of our attention. Uh, we've contemplated that, those 23 verses, for the last two weeks. And, and we're going to spend about two weeks, Lord willing, here in these few verses as well, uh, because this is a significant historical account that it, is often misinterpreted, misapplied, and so I think it's, it's worthy of just some sustained attention. But allow me to read, starting with verse 24. I'm going to go down to verse 30, and then I'm going to pray. So John Mark, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, he recorded this for us, this historical account. He says, from there he arose, he meaning Jesus. He arose and he went to the region of Tyre and, and Sidon, and he entered a house and he wanted no one to know it, but he could not be hidden. For a woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard about him, and she came 
and she fell at his feet. And the woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she kept asking him, kept asking Jesus to cast the demon out of her daughter. But Jesus said to her, quote, Let the children be filled first, for it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she answered and said to him, Yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. Verse 29, Then he said to her, For this saying, Go your way, the demon has gone out of your daughter. And when she had come to her house, she found the demon gone and her daughter lying on the bed. We go to the Lord in prayer. We thank you again for your word. I'm often struck, Lord, about how not only did you inspire your scriptures, but Lord, you have preserved your scriptures. You've kept them pure in all ages. We have confidence that what we see here are your words, and that when we read them, we hear from you. What a treasure. And God, I pray that you would help us, Lord, as we consider this passage this morning, and as we consider it again next week. Lord, help us to to see it clearly. Help us to be changed by it. And so, Lord, we confess our dependence upon you in that high task. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, I'm I'm going to, uh, the the format of my sermon is is a little different than what it typically is. I'm I'm going to, uh, I'm going to give you my takeaways up front, and then we'll work, we'll work through the, the text. And so for those of you who really thrive in just being able to anticipate what's coming. I'm so sorry. Um, <clears throat> but in, in, there's a reason, there's kind of a method to, to, to the madness there. Uh, I want to take this opportunity, and it's one of the reasons I want to do this for, for the next couple of weeks. I, w- I want us to spend about 15 minutes or so uh, doing some preliminary work before we approach this passage. And so my takeaways this morning uh, aren't directly related to this passage necessarily. It's more related to how, how should we be approaching the Word of God? How should we be approaching the Scriptures? And, and in doing that, it will help us to come to this passage with the right mindset so that we can, by God's grace, come to the right conclusions, okay? And so, so we're going to do some preliminary work. And, and the reason really that I, I, I want to do that is, is because this section of Scripture, it, it's been handled by, um, and, and handled is, is perhaps putting it mildly, but it, it's been handled by liberal theologians in very modern and novel ways. And, and these interpreters, these particular theologians, they're not just out of step with the cr- Christian consensus on this passage for the last 2,000 years, but, but there are some among them who would not only step out of that, but they're in stepping out of that seeking to manipulate the words of sacred scripture for their own social agendas. Some have even charged Jesus with committing the sin of 
of partiality here, which is to, to be a racist in, in our terms. They say that Jesus was a product of his racist environment, his racist culture, and that he had a blind prejudice, and that this woman, you know, that he, and, and they're, they're latching on to him calling this woman a little dog in, in coming to that conclusion. But, but in addition to that, they, there are some that would say that, that this woman comes and she instructs Jesus on a better and a more inclusive path forward in his ministry, that this is really a turning point for the ministry of our Lord. And, and so just, you know, just think about that for a minute. You know, think about the implications of that, right? Jesus was a racist. Jesus had a blind spot. Jesus needed to repent, needed to change course, change direction, right? It, it strikes right at, the, right at the heart of Jesus as God. It strikes right at the heart of Jesus as mediator, Jesus as our Savior, so as I've reflected on this passage this week, right, I've thought about how this is one of the reasons why it's important for us to just together as God's church just slowly consider the Scriptures, right? And it allows us to address these sorts of things, and it allows us to have our thinking rightly shaped by the various texts that we studied. So this is the reason why I think we need to do some preliminary work before we come to this passage, and I pray uh, that it is equipping for you, because what I'm about to highlight is something that you can take into your study of God's Word, no matter the passage that you're reading, no matter the passage that you're, you're contemplating. And, and this preliminary work will, will, will serve, like I said, it's is, is kind of a guide for you in, in those endeavors. And so if you're taking notes, and kids, if, if you're following along with your parents, kind of the, the overarching point, and I'm going to break this out in a few ways, is that we read the Bible as Christians. We read the Bible as Christians. And, and obviously, I'm saying that to the Christians that are gathered here this morning is, is non-Christians can't read the Bible as Christians. That doesn't mean that non-Christians can't read the Bible. That doesn't mean that non-Christians can't glean true things from the Bible. But there is a certain way in which the Bible should be read, a way that it is, that it is expected to be read, and that is in faith. It's expected to be read in faith. Faith in who? Right? Faith in who? Right? Faith in our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, creator of heaven and earth. The, the church father, Augustine, he speaks of faith preceding understanding. Preceding understanding. And I think this harmonizes well with the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, which says this, but the natural man, okay, and the natural man is, is the man apart from the Spirit of God, okay, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. Now, why is that? Why is that? Well, Paul answers, he says, for they are foolishness to him. They're foolishness to him. Nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. So this means what? Well, first, it means that to read and study Scripture Christianly is to be mindful that you're dependent. And who are you dependent upon? The interpreter, right? capital 
uh, interpreter. Now, kids, when we think of interpreter, we're speaking of the Holy Spirit of God. Right? So first, to read as a Christian, to read as one who has faith, is to read mindful that you are dependent upon the Holy Spirit of God. And so if you're taking notes, you can, you can jot that down. We, we need the Spirit's help. Right? Interestingly enough, in that 1 Corinthians 2.14 passage, Paul speaks of the natural man not being able to even know the things of the Spirit. He doesn't have in view just mere head knowledge. There is this experiential knowing that is primarily in view. We spiritually discern something as it is in our possession, not just by reading the Word, but by the Spirit of God taking the Word and applying it to our head and to our heart. The, the, the Spirit of God cannot be divorced from the Word of God. And we need to be reminded of that. The Spirit of God cannot be divorced from the Word of God. The Spirit accompanies the Word, and we must read as a people. We must study as a people. We must contemplate the Scriptures as a people and are mindful of our dependency upon the Spirit of God. So that's the first thing that we're kind of taking note of and breaking out as we seek to read the Scripture as Christians. Secondly, we read the Scriptures with our dogmas. We read the Scriptures with our dogmas. Now, kids, that word dogmas or dogma, it means certain fixed beliefs that we by faith hold. Certain fixed beliefs that we by faith hold. No creature reads the Bible in a neutral or purely objective way. No one. If somebody tells you that they can do that or that they've done that, just know that they're either lying or they're blind to their own dogmas, right? Even our sin nature is tainting the way in which we perceive things, right? We're not purely objective. And we either read the Bible as Christians, which again is to to read it by faith, or we read it as non-Christians, which is to read it without Christian faith, right? But there's still a faith there. It's just a different type of faith altogether. And no matter which category you fall into, you bring your own dogmas to the reading of Scripture. Now, what should our dogmas be as Christians? Well, this this is why ancient time-tested creeds play such an important role in our Christian faith. It's one of the reasons why we recite, say, the Apostles' Creed every single week. Orthodox, ancient creeds, they are summary statements of what the Bible teaches. These creeds are lifted from Scripture, not being imposed on Scripture. They are lifted from Scripture. They have been received by Christian consensus for centuries, and in turn, they are to be used as riverbanks for orthodox interpretations of Scripture. Right? So if you find yourself reading the Bible and you're coming to conclusions that no one in the history of Christendom has come to, right? That should give you pause, right? That should give you pause, right? That, that should humble you, shouldn't it, right? It, if you don't know how the church has historically interpreted Scripture, that should also give you pause, right? We have this rich 
heritage. We aren't islands. We, we have an old historic faith that has been handed down to us by the grace of God, right? And we should know our roots. We should know our roots. Church family, if I begin to come to conclusions in my ser- sermons that are different from this great Christian tradition that we've received, that it's the product of, of, of centuries of careful reading and careful study of Scripture, then know that I'm being inventive. I'm being inventive, that my interpretation of Scripture really is novel, not old, but young. And that should make me reassess my conclusions. That should make you as a church suspicious of how I study the sacred words of Scripture, right? The last thing that Deer Park Fellowship needs is a pastor or an elder team breaking some theological ground, right? Traveling roads that no one's walked before. We are not pioneers. We are not pioneers. And that should not be our ambition as God's church. The foundation's been laid. We want to and we should long for the old ancient paths. Jeremiah 6.16, quote, Thus says the Lord, stand in the ways and see. Ask for the old paths where the good way is and walk in it. Then you'll find rest for your souls. So our dogmas are important. They're important and we should know what they are, right? And again, we all have them. They're either documented and they're time-tested and they're published, right? And they've been critiqued or we've got these private arbitrary ones that we're bringing as we read God's Word. Third, we read scriptures knowing that the Bible's not like any other book. The Bible is not like any other book, The Bible is a collection of 66 books written over a period of of 2,000 years by 40 different authors on three different continents composed in three different languages. Yet, there is one cohesive message spanning the Old and New Testaments. Now, why is that? It's because it's divinely inspired. The Word of God is divinely inspired. That's why it's called the Word of God, right? That's the chief reason why we shouldn't read it like any other book. That's the chief reason why we're dependent upon the Holy Spirit of God as we read it, because the Holy Spirit of God is the ultimate author of it, right? Also, the book makes claims that not just any old book makes, right? It claims that it's divinely inspired. It claims that it is living and active. It claims that Jesus is God. He's the long-awaited for Messiah who came to seek and save that which is lost, and that the only way to be right with God is through Him and no one else. So as we approach Scripture, we should be primarily looking for the divine intent of the passage that we're studying, right? God used human authors to pen it, right? And Historical context, grammatical context, all those things are good, and we should labor in those things as we approach God's Word. But what supersedes them all is the divine intent of Scripture. That's what makes it living and active. That's what makes it have the ability to to read us, right, as we read the Bible. And then last, before we begin to dive into considering the passage in Mark, we read the Bible with all of God's Word in mind. 
Right? We read the Bible with all of God's Word in mind. Right? This is one of the reasons why I know that as I read a passage where I see Jesus speak of someone as a little dog, I know he's not sinning. I know he's not sinning. He isn't a racist. He's not prejudiced. Right? It does not harmonize with the sweeping testimony of Scripture about who Jesus is. So I know that there must be more going on here, and I must, so far as it depends upon me, wrestle with this text. All right? and, and by the way, this should color my, this should color my preaching as well. Right? I know we've been in Mark for a couple of weeks, <clears throat> longer than that, right? But as I preach, you'll notice that I, that I often utilize many other passages of Scripture to, to help bring clarity to the, the main text that we're focusing on for that particular week in the Gospel of Mark. Right? So in our reading, right, in our studying, in, in, our, uh, 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 in, in, my, in my preaching, right, we should strive to be mindful of all of God's Word, which requires us to be familiar with our Bibles. Right? So, so I, I give this to you, and again, these are the, the takeaways up front. I give this to you to help demonstrate right out of the gate that a conclusion like Jesus was a racist, but he didn't know it, is frankly a lazy interpretation. Right? It's a young, unorthodox view that contradicts Scripture as a whole. It contradicts uh, or, or orthodox dogma, dogma, and as a result, the last 2,000 years of Bible interpretation. In other words, it's a very lightweight interpretation. It holds, it holds no substance, okay? So, so that's the preliminary work, okay? Uh, let, let's together now consider our text a bit more. Let's consider what it says, what's going on here, and, and, and how does considering this passage together conform us to Christ and enrich our worship of the triune God, okay? So, in this historical account, we have Jesus who, who's kind of around the region of Tyre and, and Sidon, and, and he's there with his disciples, and, and we know he's there with his disciples because of Matthew's account, all right? the Gospel of Matthew, which is the only other gospel writer that gives us an account of this particular historical event. And, and Mark's account tells us that Jesus did not want people to know that he and the disciples were there. We see that if you're, again, kind of looking at the text with me as I'm, as I'm talking, we see that in verse 24. And, and that's an interesting comment that Mark, under the inspiration of the Spirit, includes for us. Now, we can't be certain of this, but, but this particular area of, of, of Tyre and Sidon that, that Jesus is in is predominantly a Gentile, it was, was predominantly a Gentile region, and it could be that Jesus and his disciples who had been ministering to Jews and, and can't seem to really find the rest that they've been looking for are seeking a, a quieter place in a Gentile, predominantly Gentile region, right? It could be that they needed to get away from all the confrontations that they've had with the religious leaders, as we, for instance, saw in the text prior to the text we're considering this morning. It could be that they needed to get away from Herod uh, Antipas, who had just executed, if you remember, he had just executed John the Baptist, right? And, and news about Christ is spreading, and, and Christ has Herod his attention, right? It could be a combination of these things. Mark doesn't necessarily make that clear, but given the context, Jesus 
in his humanity, along with his disciples, see, is seeking rest and, and to, to further instruct his disciples while being away from this multitude that continues to find them. And, and we see that Jesus needed time to instruct his disciples. And, and the evidence of that is just by how often the, the teachings of Jesus to the disciples were beyond their reach, were out of their grasps, uh, their grasp, and, ha- and, and how he often had to give a special interpretation for them. Now, there's also the Syrophoenician, okay, and she's a Gentile, and kids, when you, when you hear the word Gentile, it just, it means somebody who's not a Jew, okay, but there's this woman, and she, she learns that Jesus has arrived in that general region, and she's the type of person that any Jew would dread speaking to. In fact, the way in which Mark introduces this woman, it helps to bring that into clearer focus. It, it, it's almost building suspense if you're, if you're kind of slowly reading through these few verses here. First, we, again, we see that it takes place around Tyre and Sidon, which isn't this warm and, and friendly environment for a Jew. And I'll, I'll explain that more in just a moment. Okay, but, but even the setting that this takes place, it's not this warm, friendly environment from Jewish perspective. Secondly, she was a woman who was alone. Right? This would have been inappropriate in Jewish culture for a woman to come and address a man who isn't her husband, especially somebody viewed as a rabbi or a, a, a teacher. Third, she was Greek, which probably meant kind of how she grew up. But Mark also adds that she was a Syrophoenician, so a, a Syrophoenician that was Hellenized, if you will. So, so Mark's giving us, he's laboring under the Spirit of God to give us a clear picture of the type of person that is approaching Jesus, the type of person that's seeking him out. And again, if you read Matthew's account, she's begging. She, she's causing a scene. There, it, it's... it's, it's disrupting the peace of the area and certainly the peace and rest that Jesus and the disciples are seeking. So we have this clear picture and and I think that Mark's original audience which we've tried to you know I've tried to keep this in front of you to the Roman Empire right they would have been paying very close attention to this story. Right she she isn't a Jew and again if you know anything of the historical context of our passage right the setting of this passage is just it's dramatic. One commentator says this about the, just this area, Tyre, that region, that surrounding region, probably represented the most extreme expressions of paganism, both actually and symbolically, that a Jew could expect to encounter. And he goes on, he says, according to the Apocrypha, which we right, know is not sacred canon, but it's an old historical document. But according to the Apocrypha, the Messiah would be ordained to expel and subdue the Gentiles, not to visit and embrace them. And in journeying to the vicinity of Tyre, and particularly in receiving a Syrophoenician woman, Jesus expands the scope of his ministry beyond anything conceivable of the Messiah. Josephus, who was a Jewish historian in the first century, he said this about that region, that area. He said, quote, they were notoriously our bitterest enemies. Notoriously our bitterest enemies. If you're familiar with your Old Testament, 
we know from 1 Kings chapter 16, verses 31 and 32, that that, that region as well had been the home of Jezebel, right? who in Elijah's day, and one commentator summarizes it this way, had nearly subverted the northern kingdom with her pagan prophets and her pagan practices. So, so this is all very important background information for us as we're reading this passage. So Jesus and the disciples, they, they want to remain hidden in this particular region, but this woman finds, she finds them, she particularly finds Jesus, and, and we'll see that more find him in, uh, as we journey through this passage together in the coming weeks. But this woman, she finds Jesus, and, and we uh, know that she is coming to Jesus on behalf of her daughter. And her daughter uh, was possessed by a demon. And again, this area was known for this kind of stuff. But Matthew's account emphasizes this possession, this demon possession. Matthew records it this way, that she was, quote, severely demon-possessed. That's chapter 15, verse 22. She was severely demon-possessed. The situation was dire, right? And, and, and this mom is doing what any mom would do, right? She's interceding for her daughter. She's pleading with the one who's demonstrated that he has authority over the demons, that it is the demons that fear him, right? Not the other way around. And think just for a moment of, of how powerful that would have been for this mother who was motivated to interrupt the peace and quiet of Jesus. Right? If her daughter was severely demon-possessed, Right, so I, you know, if there's this spectrum of demon possession, right? If you go to the doctor and they ask you to rate your pain on a scale of one to ten, right? That she, you know, perhaps this is on the ten side of things, isn't it? Severely, de- it seemed like this was a particular special category here. But this mother of this demon possessed child, daughter, right? She comes to the one that she believes is more powerful than this severe demon. Earlier in the Gospel of Mark, we we see Jesus, actually, interestingly enough, later in this chapter, we see him in the Decapolis, which we know is the collection of various Gentile cities. And if you remember that name, Decapolis, we saw that earlier in our study in the Gospel of Mark, when Jesus faced the legion and he cast the legion of demons out of the man, and, and the man becomes, in some ways, a, a type of evangelist in the Decapolis and in the, in the collection of the, the Gentile cities, right? And I couldn't help but wonder as I was studying this, right? I, did the mom hear? Did she hear a, a, about that severe demon possession? right? Because the man was notorious, right? People knew about him. Did she hear about that? And, and she, in faith, knew that Jesus, if he did that, he could certainly cast the demons out of her daughter. Yeah. And, and I do think it was in faith that she came to Christ. Because in, in her coming to Jesus, she, uh, according to our text, she falls at his feet. Right? You see that in verse 25. She falls at his feet. And we, we've noted that that phrasing is common in the Gospel of Mark, right? We've seen that 
that language used numerous times, most recently as it related to the religious leader Jairus, who came on behalf of his daughter, right, who had died and Jesus resurrected from the dead. Right? And we know that the woman with the hemorrhage for 12 years, she came and she fell at the feet of Jesus. Right? Both came in faith, both Jairus, this religious leader, and the woman with the hemorrhage for 12 years. Right? Both worshipped Jesus. And we have every reason to believe that this is what this woman, this Gentile, what she did. In fact, Matthew's gospel gives us the detail in verse 25 of Matthew 15. It says, she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. Now, Jesus makes a very interesting comment to this woman who's at her wit's end. All right? he, he's her last hope, and his reply to her is what's been, it's what's been analyzed and misinterpreted both intentionally and unintentionally by all kinds of different theologians seeking to advance a particular agenda. Right? And his comment to her is actually a parable, and it's a parable that we need to spiritually discern. Jesus' parable to the woman, perhaps a, a test of her faith, is in verse 27, if you want to look back just for a moment. Jesus says, let the children be filled first, for it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Now, is Jesus being mean or racist in this statement? The answer of the Christian is absolutely not. Again, we, we know in addition to this being out of step with the Christian tradition, that it's also out of step with the sweeping testimony of Scripture, that Jesus, who is the eternal God, the second person of the Trinity, the creator of everything visible and invisible, is the sinless, spotless Lamb, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19. And if Jesus committed the, the sin of partiality, he would be none of those things, right? And if that is the case, we have much to fear because we would still be in our sins because we did not in all reality have a sufficient Savior that made us right with God. So this isn't some tedious technical thing for us to consider this morning. It's weighty. It's of eternal significance, and we have to give it due consideration. In fact, we should want to give it due consideration as God's church, shouldn't we? Now, the question we must first ask is, what does Jesus mean, or who does he have in view when he says children? Right? And the second question is, what does he mean? Who does he have in view when he says little dogs? Now, I'm going to give you the short answer up front, but I'm going to show you from a couple of other passages how this statement from Christ is not derogatory, and that what is behind it is reflected in the preaching ministry of the, uh, of the apostles and is used by Mark to demonstrate the compassion of Jesus and the far-reaching nature of the gospel. So quickly... The answer to the two questions is this, right? The children are the Jewish people, okay? The children are the Jewish people, ethnic Jews, all non-Gentile. And by little dogs, Jesus means Gentiles, all non-Jews. In other words, most if not all of us sitting here this morning, right? Now, <clears throat> a few places that can help us, uh, perhaps give us more clarity so that we can begin to get some insight into what it is that Christ is doing here, knowing, in fact, that the, this would have colored the preaching ministry of the apostles. But first, Acts chapter 3, and you're most welcome to turn there. Acts chapter 3, verses 25 
26. I'm going to go to a couple of places. But pay a part. This is, uh, just pay attention here. To, uh, this is Peter's address at Solomon's porch. He says this. He says, You are sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, and pay attention here, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you and turning away every one of you from your iniquities. Right? So, so Peter, okay, speaking to the Jews, said that the covenant that God made and fulfilled in Jesus Christ was first given to them, to the Jews. But is that where the salvation that God provided, is that where it stayed? Is that where it stayed? Right? That, that, it, it did not stay there, right? We see Peter, in fact, quote Genesis chapter 22, verse 18, in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed, right? Peter uses that to point to Gentiles, okay? But, but there's this ordering that we see, Jew first, then Gentiles. We also see this reflected in Paul's preaching ministry, right? And remember, Paul was an apostle to who primarily? To, to the Gentiles, right? He says in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 to 17, quote, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. And it gives for the Jew first and also for the Greek, the Gentile, right? For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Or we could consider this rebuke by Paul and Barnabas speaking to the Jews in Acts chapter 13, verses 44 to 48. It says this, On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. Isn't that incredible? You can imagine that, right? Almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradict. This is what they do out of an envious heart. Contradicting and blaspheming, they opposed the things spoken by Paul. Verse 46, Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, but since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles, for so the Lord has commanded us. Then quoting Isaiah 42 and 49, it says, quote, I've set you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, when the Gentiles heard this, right, because this is within Earnshaw, the whole city's come out, right? They were glad and they glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as uh, had been appointed to eternal life believed. Right? We, we see Paul and Barnabas say to the Jews that it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to them first. Why? Because that was God's ordering of things. Right? But we see something else in this passage too. We see here that there was this hardening, this rejection by many Jews. They heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. They closed themselves off. And then in contrast, the Gentiles, upon hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ, they received it with gladness and, quote, glorified the word of the Lord. Incredible. And here we see an ordering of things, Jew 
Gentile. Now, these passages, they, they certainly help us to see things a bit more clearly, right? Namely, this ordering, right? The gospel came to the Jewish people first so that they might be a light to the Gentiles, right? I think it helps explain the ordering of Jesus's parable to this woman, right? He didn't deny healing to the woman in this parable. He just said, let the children have their fill first. In other words, let salvation come to the Jews first. But these other passages, they certainly don't answer, fully answer the question that we're asking. It defines the term, I think, children. We can see how children would be used of the Jewish people, but why is the word dog used of, of Gentiles? Well, one central reason is because it was the vernacular of the day as it related to distinguishing between Jews and Gentiles, and Jesus capitalizes on it, and so does Mark under the inspiration of the Spirit, but for the purpose of sending a very clear signal. And but before I get to that, let me just consider the context with you for a moment of the usage of that word, the way that Jesus uses it. You know, he uses little dog, but first, that, that, I mean, that word dog, right, just dog, Right? It was often used in this day and age by Jewish religious leaders as a derogatory term that meant unclean or it meant filthy. And, and what was in view was wild animals. What was in view it was, it was scavengers. That's how the term was, was commonly used as it related to being ascribed to Gentiles. However, as we approach our text, we should note that it's not a coincidence that Mark puts this encounter right after Jesus' confrontation with the Pharisees, where he speaks of outward things not being unclean, but rather the heart being unclean, right? If Jesus calls dishes and food in that section clean, he wouldn't turn around and say that a person created in the image of God is unclean just because they're not a Jew, right? So, So we know that that can't be right. Second, be mindful, again, of Mark's audience. It's the Roman Empire. Think of what some of them might be thinking as they read this story, read this story, or heard this story just with bated breath. Does the gospel extend beyond the Jews? Does the gospel extend to those that the religious leaders would think of and label as dogs? Mark is intentionally answering that question for us. Third, Jesus doesn't use in the Greek the word that Jewish religious leaders would commonly use to refer to a Gentile. Again, the word that they would use, dog, was just meant unclean. The word Jesus uses, little dogs, it means household pet. So he uses a word that people would have been familiar with as it related to Gentiles because, again, he and Mark recording it for us under the inspiration of the Spirit, they're teaching a very important point about the nature of the gospel, right? So it's important that the language be preserved, but instead of keeping the derogatory connotations to the word, Jesus strips the word of all of that, and he uses what's translated as little dog, as household pet, One commentator adds this as well. The fact that the woman refers to her daughter and herself with the same term in her reply to Jesus shows that she does not take this form of the word dog in a hostile way. And where do we see that? Right? In Jesus' reply, in, in the woman's reply to Jesus. Right? She says, yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs, the household pets, 
under the table eat the children's crumbs, right? It's not the scavenger wild dogs that live on the outside, but there is in view here these, these household pets that are inside, right, that eat the crumbs of their owners, right? Now, what do we see here? I think we see that this woman, she had spiritually discerned this parable, right? In the company of the Jews, particularly the Jewish leaders, right? The parables of Jesus hardened the heart. We even saw last week that Jesus had to explain his parable to his own disciples. And that wasn't the first time that he had to do that, right? As we've worked through Mark together. But here, in the midst of a wicked pagan city, there is a woman who came to Jesus. There is a woman who worshiped Jesus, and she understood this parable of Jesus in such a way that she was able to respond to her Savior with such wisdom and grace and humility. And how does Jesus respond to this? He heals her daughter. And not only that, he seemingly marvels at her faith. Matthew even records Jesus' response this way in verse 28 of Matthew 15. It says, Then Jesus answers and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. Now, there's a lot to chew on, right? Right? And I've given you things to jot down and and think about this morning, but I want us to just for a moment to just end by, by thinking on the fact that Jesus spoke to this woman who was by herself. He spoke to this woman who had the nationality of one who would be considered deplorable, right? Who would be considered unclean, someone who would be called a dog, like truly one who's unredeemable and, and, and calls a land known for all sorts of paganism and all sorts of perversity, she calls that land home. Right. He talks to this woman, and in his parable, he uses language that was normally meant in a derogatory way. Right. And he uses it, he strips it of its insult, and in doing so, he sends this clear signal that non-Jewish people are included in God's gracious plan of salvation. That Jesus came not only to seek and save the lost Jew, but he came to seek and save the lost Gentile. And this woman is presented here to Mark's readers who coming from the Roman Empire came from all different types of of backgrounds, right? It's It's as if Mark, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is saying to them, Jesus saved this woman and he can save you, right? He saved this woman, and he can save you. Jesus delivered by the word of his power this girl who was severely possessed, and he can deliver you. And beloved, that rings true for us today. That rings true for us today. We see this passage preserved by the Spirit of God for us here so that we can collectively, as God's church, exalt in our Savior, who is Christ, and to be in awe of His power over all creation, and in turn praise our triune God for the far-reaching nature of the gospel.
And we'll consider this text more, Lord willing, next week. Why don't we go to the Lord in prayer? God, we thank you for this passage, God. We thank you. It's been used and abused by so many, Lord. But what you're genuinely communicating to us through it has such marvelous implications, God. That there's no sinner beyond the reach of your saving power. And you remind us of that again and again. So, Lord, this morning I pray for the one who may be sitting here that doesn't know you, isn't a Christian, but they would forsake their sin and trust and and rest in Christ alone, Lord, who is such a good Savior. And I pray that we as Christians would be reminded anew this morning, Lord, of Just this glorious gospel that you've gifted us with, that you've given us, God, though we are undeserving. But for the one that may be struggling this morning that thinks they're too far gone, I pray that they would see in here a call from you to come to Christ. So, Lord, we love you. We trust you. We thank you for this time we've had together. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.